Hello, everyone, and welcome to And There You Go, a podcast about life. Whether you're hanging from a cliff by one hand or laughing your ass off, we'll cover it all. And now your co-hosts, Addie and Chad. Well, here we are again. Yes, we are. It's kind of a hot and sultry day out today. It is very hot. Yes. Humid. I left my window open and the humidity came in, uh, in my office. Oh. And so I just closed my window and started cooling down and it started raining inside my office. So we're in the loft, right? And we've got the big HVAC tubes going through that are exposed, you know, about 12 inches in diameter. Mm -hmm. And of course there's really cold air there. And so the humid air from outside is now inside and it's getting cooled off and the water in the air, the moisture in the air is condensing on the, the big pipes and it's drip, drip, dripping on my desk. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> lovely. You know, just <laughs> when you think you're kind of a smart person, raindrops keep falling on your head. Do you remember that song? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's an oldie but a goodie. Yeah, I do remember it. All right, so... On this episode, we're going to kind of continue with my story. Um, The last episode about my story, I really started with the first half of um, my story. And again, it was more of a high-level thing, and we'll keep it at a high level on this one as well. And I'm going to pick up where I kind of started last time. So if you remember, I started in the middle of my story and worked my way to the back to the beginning just to kind of talk about how I got there how I got to my lowest point. Right. So now this part of it is what happened from there. So if you'll remember, I was in detox. Mm-hmm. And I remember the uh, one of the administrators there called me into his office uh, and said, you know, Chad, uh, I've got some forms for you to fill out here. They're for a recovery center. And I thought, oh, geez. You know, and uh, he said, your wife wants you to fill this out and get this sent in ASAP, like right now, you know, within the next half hour here. And of course, I was resistant to that notion. And he said, you know, Chad, you're not welcome at home either, by the way. So when you get done here, you're not going home. I said, where am I going? He said, you're going to a hotel. There's been arrangements made for a taxi to pick you up and take you to this hotel. Okay. And, of course, I didn't have a lot of detail beyond that. And so the day came, uh, and it might have been that very day that I left. And I went outside, and there was a taxi there, and it was all prepaid. And it took me back to the city that I lived in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, we were about 40 miles out from from the place. And it took me to a hotel uh, near where I lived, but not close enough where I could walk there easily. Uh, It was an isolated hotel. There were uh, empty lots all around it, like buildings had been demolished. And Mm -hmm. about the only thing close by was a restaurant. So I began my post-detox experience there. Now, I'm going to just put a pause button here, push the pause button for a second, because one of the things I wanted to to mention early on in this this part of the talk is that in recovery— Uh, whether you're in a treatment program or if you're going through AA and you reach a milestone, say, you know, 24 hours sober or Mm -hmm. 30 days sober, a year sober, you'll often get some kind of token 
that will, you know, commemorate that event or that, that milestone. And then people will ask you, how did you do it? And that's really what I want to kind of talk about as I move forward with this conversation. And I should have started with that, but, but neither here nor there. Um, you know, that's kind of what uh, I, I want to talk about with this. So I arrive at the hotel, and there's, I have nothing but the clothes that I'm wearing. I don't have my wallet. I don't have anything like that. And I am told that I need to go to the front desk and ask them for my luggage. Well, my luggage was a paper bag with clothes stuffed in it. And my wallet was in there, but no credit cards, no cash. I had gift certificates to the restaurant that was uh, adjacent to the hotel. So there I was. And the instructions were I needed to be there. Uh, I wasn't allowed home, and I needed to work at getting myself into treatment. So you can imagine my mindset just bewildered, scared, anxious, wondering, you know, is my life as I knew it over? Yeah. And I spent ultimately uh, almost a week in that hotel waiting for a bed to open up in the treatment center that I went to. And as I was going through the exercise of applying to the treatment center, I saw on the paper that that it was a 90-day program, and I'm thinking, oh my Lord, I cannot do 90 days in inpatient treatment. 90 days, three months. Mm -hmm. And I submitted my paperwork. I talked to the person. Uh, He said, okay, we'll take a look. We'll, you know, let you know. He called me back and he said, well, you've been approved for 28 days. And I went, Yes, inside. And when I notified my, actually, no, it was it was less than that. It was 21 days that I was approved. I ultimately got approved for another week, so 28 days total. Okay. Uh, but 21 days, so that was even better. And, uh, you know, I, I let my wife know, and she was not happy. Uh, her expectation was I'd be gone for three months. And so while I was waiting for a bed to open up, I had nothing but time on my hands. And, of course, I was still going through the shakes. I was going through all of this. And I started thinking, okay, so I'm being forced to do this. I really don't want to. But at the same time, I knew I had to get sober. And so I started thinking about this and started playing with this notion of sobriety and long-term sobriety and uh, really started to become accustomed to it, uh, started contemplating that. And that's an important word, contemplate. I want to come back to that as we kind of wrap this up. Uh, It's a part of uh, a very important part of a very important process that I've really studied since then that talks about the stages of change and how you move through that. And contemplation is one of the stages of change. And so I was in this contemplative mode. And uh, I started to think, you know, if, if I've only got 21 days in treatment, that's not very long. And I knew that I had, not been, I had been sober for a year, but I fell down. How could I go 21 days and not fall down again? And so it really dawned on me that I needed to have a plan outside of after that treatment. And I wasn't sure what that looked like entirely, but I knew it probably meant doing outpatient uh, treatment, uh, probably getting involved with AA, maybe getting involved more with my church, uh, doing things like that. 
And so as this, this plan started to formulate in my head. So when, you know, you ask me, how did I do it? Well, this is how it started. And then the day came when I was admitted to inpatient treatment. Uh, the facility that I went to was kind of a Christian-based. It wasn't mandatory Christian, but it was heavily Christian. And I, I chose that for a reason at the time because I thought that that would be helpful to me at the time. And uh, I was terrified to go in. I didn't know what to expect with, uh, with a treatment facility, what that experience would look like. I was terrified of having to open up to people and telling them my truth, my story. I knew that was going to be a part of it. And I got in, and this place was rough. Um, there was a lot of... Uh, well, any, most of the patients in there didn't have money to pay for treatment, but they were required to be in treatment, uh, court-ordered or, you know, other reasons like that. And so there were a lot of them that were uh, in there by uh, um, payments through the county. Uh, the county would pay for it. And so it was a really, really rough crowd. And I'll talk more about that whole experience at some point in time. But one of the things that I noticed when I got in there very quickly was that as I listened to the other guys and they're talking, I started to hear myself and their stories. And that started to put me at a little bit more of an, you know, more at ease. So I started to feel more comfortable about possibly talking. And so again, contemplative and really thinking through and, you know, maybe I should do this. So do you think that it was probably in your best interest not to go home? In hindsight, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a really good question because I was very resentful at that time and very scared at that time about this mandate that I not come home. See, I did that too. Yeah. I did not allow him to come home. Yep. He, I just said, I am not going to police you. Right. And right. on top of it, he had denied all abuse. So I knew that just things were going to get worse. Yeah. So I said, you can't come home. You can stay with your parents and it will be, it won't be until after Thanksgiving that you come home because I want my family, my children to have a nice holiday for a change. Yeah. Because he made it miserable any holiday. So, yeah. yeah, I took some pretty hard stances at that point. Well, just so you know and everybody else knows who hasn't really experienced this firsthand, that is a very healthy thing to do. Um, if you go to Al-Anon, which is uh, similar to AA, but it's for the loved ones of, of people affected by the addiction, they talk a lot about detachment, and uh, this is a that's a form of detachment. You can still love somebody, but you can you can also put some boundaries up, and that's a very very healthy boundary to put up. And in the spirit of owning my behaviors, yeah, that you know to your to your question, yeah, that was probably the best thing. And in fact, it's it was actually a blessing in disguise for me. And I'll kind of lay that out as we go through this conversation here. Well, you got a lot of quiet thought in. Oh, tremendous. Some, yeah. And yeah, more to come on that too. Um, okay. And that's, that's really, really critical to how I did it mm -hmm. and, and my recovery. You know, so in treatment was where I really started to 
get to the core of what my issues were. I knew that the last time I went to treatment, the outpatient treatment, where I was sober for a year, I didn't talk about the biggest thing that was causing me the most amount of internal turmoil. And that was the string of um, uh, betrayals that I had experienced. I didn't talk about that in the previous treatment. I felt like I was responsible in part, or I was too ashamed uh, to talk about it. And so in this new experience in inpatient treatment, that was the first thing I talked about. So here's another key point in this whole process of change. It's looking for the truth and accepting the truth. And by accepting, I don't mean that you say, oh, it's okay, you know, all this shit can happen to me and it's okay. That's not what I'm talking about. Acceptance means you acknowledge it as the truth. You simply acknowledge it as the truth. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't do that, until you do that, you are not starting from a foundation that is stable. And you cannot move off of a foundation that's not stable and have it be successful. So you have to have a very solid understanding of what reality is and what the truth is and accept that. Because if you don't accept it, like I didn't accept it the first time through. I didn't accept that my truth was I was angry and resentful for those betrayals. I didn't accept that. And I fell down again. And so that's a very, very important, crucial part of the start of any change journey that we talk about. And so I'll I'll talk more about that as we go along. Yeah, well, starting from the truth then, you began to realize that you were not responsible for the infidelities and the betrayals. Absolutely. Because that wasn't, those were not decisions that you made. Right, right. So... Were you able to hand that back? It took a long time to be able to hand that back, and it's it's a process. It, it really is a process to kind of unravel this knotted, twisted ball of anger and resentments and confusion and, you know, just uh, misinformation that you've been fed, all of this stuff that's just knotted up inside of you. Well, on top of it, it sounds like there was gaslighting. There was. I mean, from oh, everything that you yeah, say. Yeah, absolutely there was. So and, when and you're he, being gaslighted, then you don't believe in yourself. Right. It affects your self-esteem. Right. And so to pull myself back then to that foundational truth of, of what happened and to acknowledge it and to acknowledge all of the feelings that I had and to start unraveling those. That's really what I was able to start to do in inpatient treatment. Now, was I healed when I ended that stint uh, after four weeks? No, absolutely not. What it had done is it had given me the opportunity to separate myself from the effects of alcohol so that I could start to think clearly. Now, not everybody goes to that place of truth within themselves when they're in treatment. They're there for a lot of different reasons. And it's a lot of times it's to placate something else. I saw that happen I'm when sure. I went to family week. I'm sure you did. Times. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But I knew, and my belief in this grew 
in those four weeks that I needed to be sober, that I needed to find a way. And, you know, again, it comes back to what's my plan after this? And part of that plan was to, again, because I was not allowed at home, I was given an opportunity for a, a place in a sober living environment through this organization, which was a blessing too. It was like ultra cheap rent, room and board, you know, for just a few hundred dollars a month. And did you make that decision? I didn't make the decision not to go home. I made the decision to go to this place, though. Okay, that was my question. Yeah, 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 I made the decision to go to this place because it kept me connected to this organization, which I felt like was uh, a lifeline to me. It was really starting to feel like that. And and again, throughout this this, um, program that I was in, I did the work. And that's something else that's really, really critical in any change process is that there are two four-letter words that people don't like, but you got to do it. And that's hard work. You've got to do the work to make this happen. And I did that because I knew that, you know, with a blood alcohol of 0.421, when I went into detox, I knew if I went back to that I wasn't going to make it this time. The odds were not with me, and I wanted to live, and I had my children to live for, and I I just wanted to experience life. And so I, I, I knew I had to do this. I had to have a plan. And you wanted to experience life sober. Well, I don't know that that was really something that was forefront in my mind. In hindsight, the way that I experience life as a sober person now is insanely beautiful. And I wish the me back then could know that, but it's a process. And you have to come to appreciate that. And it just it's a, a step-by-step in an AA, they say, one day at a time. And that's really what it is, is that you just keep chugging along one yeah. day at a time. Isn't it more like one moment at a time? Sometimes it can be. Yeah, yeah. You have people that are white-knuckling it you know, all the way through all of this where they're just, you know, they're fighting off this urge. And uh, it's interesting because all of the noise in my head leading up until this point of time, I was terrified that I was going to have this in treatment. And what would I do with it? I didn't have any substance to squelch it. You know, I I used alcohol to to squelch it before. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that and I wasn't going to have that. And I thought, how am I going to sleep? I'm just going to be so tired. I'm going to be so strung out. And the first night I was in treatment, I slept like a baby. I, I had no noise in my head, and I've had so little noise in my head ever since then. It was, it was really a, a, an unreal experience for me. So it was a healthier place for you to be. Oh, absolutely it was. Yeah, yeah, whether I believed it or not, you know. So I, I started the sober living and as a part of that, uh, they require that you start looking for work or prove that you have work. Uh, and so I started looking. I explained to them that, you know, I was more of a corporate type, so it was going to take me a while to find a job. And they had resources there, computers and uh, computer lab place that you could go and uh, do job searches. And uh, I did that. And I was going to outpatient three three nights a week. Uh, so it was called intensive outpatient. So more sessions and longer sessions. Okay. And so I had that uh, continuation of that exploration of self, uh, really understanding uh, what was going on with me and dealing with a lot of the emotions that I had been feeling. 
and really working to improve that. So that was a really healthy experience as well. But but as I started looking at jobs and getting back into my what might would be my life, my my real life, every time I looked at job descriptions or job postings, I would have this massive pit in my stomach. And it's like, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? And, you know, I had a lot of free time. And I had a car at that time, and I could, you know, I was mobile. I had a little bit of money. I could have done whatever I wanted, but I didn't. Because at that point in time, I was absolutely adamant that I needed to be sober. And so what I did was to kind of kill time. Uh, I went to a lake. There was a, there's a lake in the city that I was in. And I would walk around that lake. And there was a string of lakes, actually. And each one had a walking path around it. And each one was roughly three miles, you know, around the path. Well, I remember the one. You remember the one. I took you on the one. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this was in the summertime, so it was really beautiful weather. And uh, I would spend as much time as I could walking. And... When I first started, it was like, okay, I'm listening to music. I get my, I have my earbuds in, and uh, I'm listening to some music, and I'm just mindlessly walking. And what I eventually ended up doing was I would always take notes in treatment in the different sessions, and I would take some little snippet of something that I wanted to really dig deep into. And I would take that idea or that thought or that little snippet of, of information and I would take that and process it as I walked around the lake. And early on in that process, I realized that I honestly, truly, now that I'm off this alcohol and my mind has started to kind of normalize and I'm starting to become myself again, which I hadn't seen that self in a long time, which caused me to ask this question. Who am I? I, I bet. I couldn't. I, I did not know that. who I was. I didn't know how to define myself. And so that was one of the big things that I took with me on these walks, and it took a long time. And it's, you know, the, peeling the proverbial onion. You know, just peel back layer. Okay, I feel like this. I feel like that. I, I think I'm this. I'm, and it all started with, you know, more materialistic and more, mm, I don't know what the right word is, but, you know, I, I, was, I came out of the corporate world, and I always saw myself as, you know, that type of person and a, a father and, uh, you know, a guy who lives in the suburbs. And, uh, and so I, that's, that's how on the very surface level I was defining myself. But then I started to peel that back. And I started to see something different. And I kept peeling it back, peeling it back, until one day I just stopped and I just hit me. That I am nothing more and nothing less than a child of this universe or child of God. Simple as that. And that's no different than anybody else who is on this planet. At, a, at my most fundamental level, I was brought into this universe However you want to think about it, put a religious spin on it, put an agnostic spin on it, put an atheist spin on it, whatever. I, my existence in this universe is fundamentally who I am. What, what does that mean? 
you know, I mean, that's the, that's <laughs> that, the next step. That's the next <laughs> thing, you know. So that, that really the next question for me became, okay, yeah, so what? I'm a, I'm a child of the universe here. You know, I'm, I'm a, a creature of this universe, however you want to phrase that. What the hell am I doing here? What's my purpose? That became the next big question. And so, again, another big onion put in front of me. And so I started walking and walking and peeling this onion back. And I really started thinking about, and this is a real cool exercise for for anybody to do. If you're kind of struggling with, you know, what do you want to do for a career or what do you, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Start thinking about when were you the happiest and what were you doing at that time? And so for me, what that looked like was when I was doing my work, because I knew I had to work to make money. Mm-hmm. So let's put this in the context of work. When I was happy at work, what was I doing? What was happening? What was going on? And so then I started peeling that onion back and peeling it back. And I realized I was the happiest when I could kind of be of service to other people. Boing. There's that little there's that, that little light bulb <laughs> yeah. that came on. Uh-huh. So I I it I summed, was able to sum all of this up and this was like you know probably several weeks worth of walking and thinking and and really it it, it just was really summarized for me very neatly with a sentence I am a child of this universe who was put here to serve. Simple as that. You know, and that's what this podcast is. That's the work that I do, uh, you know, otherwise outside of this podcast and and all of that. And so, again, it begs the question, what the hell do I do with that now? And right, I, I had, you're peeling back the onions. Right, right. And you have not really, really felt emotion except sad for so long right right yeah yeah so you were trying to even figure out your emotions oh trying to figure out every aspect of of myself yeah absolutely you know what what and you've talked about this before too what did I like I mean you know what Mm -hmm. movies do I like for me what foods do I like for me uh you know just anything like that and really trying to figure it out but I had this this sentence that said I'm a child of the universe and I'm here to serve so okay, how do I how do I find a vocation or a career that you know will allow me to make some money while being true to that statement? And I had no clue. I had no freaking clue. And so I I continued with my walks and sometimes walked you know twelve fifteen miles a day doing this. And in that, my mind got stronger, my heart got stronger, my body got stronger, my will got stronger to keep moving down this path. And I was doing the hard work physically, mentally, and emotionally, and psychologically. I was doing this hard work. Were you mostly doing this just on your own then? I was absolutely 100% on my own. Except for going to meetings. Except for going to outpatient. And yes, I did start going to uh, AA meetings. I picked up a sponsor. And that, you know, of course, fed into a lot of my thinking about, you know, what kind of person do I want to be coming out of this experience? Uh, What what do I want to do that's true to myself? And, you know, going back to that statement of, of, you know, here to be a service, what do I do? I, I had no clue. So what I did was probably something totally whacked. 
and I basically said to myself, and I didn't tell anybody this, but I basically said to myself, I'm quitting the corporate world. I'm not going back. I can't go back. That was a part of the problem. And I can't do that anymore. Because it wasn't really you. You know what? And that's another really good point, that it was not aligned with my core values. That's something else that I didn't understand in all of this. Throughout my entire adult life, my career life, my value system was at odds with my behaviors. So the cognitive dissonance, what I believed in versus what I was doing, those two things were at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of the noise that was in my head. But I thought I had to be doing the behaviors and not paying attention to what was me. And that's where we come back to what is the truth of me and starting with that foundation and really stepping off from that point. And so what I did, again, I, in, you know, in my head, I said, I'm quitting the corporate world. What the hell do I do now? So uh, at the time, I just happened to be on unemployment, but it ran out. And about that time, uh, I was allowed to come home, which was a really surreal experience to, to, to go home. I'm sure. And so I didn't have any income coming in. And so I took a job, any job that I could get. And this job was working at a Target store, unloading trucks and stocking shelves overnight, the overnight shift doing this. Mm -hmm. And people around me were going, what the are you doing, Chad? And, you know, I was thinking the same thing. But in hindsight, uh, and I worked there for a, about a year and a half doing that. And in hindsight, that was the best thing I could have done for myself because it was mindless work. And I could continue, I could continue my thinking, my thought process and peeling back the onions that I had and noodling the thoughts that I had and really coming to understand who I am. But I was also doing something very physical. I was doing something of value. Even though I wasn't getting paid much money, I was still bring, bringing money in. And it really helped me settle in on what my values were and really kind of take the next steps. So along in of the way there, uh, in, in, and I'm not going to delve too much into this part of the story, but I came across a job posting for a recovery center that was looking for what's called a tech, a technician, an addiction technician, a recovery technician. And those are individuals that um, work with the patients on a day-to-day -day basis, making sure that, uh, you know, they're kind of supervising them throughout the course of the day and overnight. Uh, and uh, not clinical people, but uh, just, you know, people like me. And uh, I applied to a position and I got it. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I started doing it. And the more I learned and the more I had these interactions, it's like, okay, here it comes. You know, this child of the universe here, he's being of service to these people here. He's helping people, and, he's, and it feels good, and it feels amazing. I'm not getting paid, diddly squad, but it feels freaking amazing. And so I kept doing that, and I kept building that. And uh, over the course of uh, a number of years, I became involved in uh, one of the organizations, one of the premier recovery organizations in the United States, and uh, just continued to build that, uh, you know, in terms of being of service. 
And so it, it was a radical transformation for me, mm-hmm. you know. So at this point, did you go to see a therapist to help you? Yes, thank you for that. Yes, that was a part of my, my personal recovery program, uh, you know, that I talked about, uh, you know, doing the uh, AA program, uh, which I did to the Hilton. I'll talk about that sometime because that was a tremendous experience for me. Um, going to outpatient, but also getting involved with a therapist. And so that allowed me to dig even deeper into myself and really explore a lot of things. And, you know, that's what ultimately brought me to the place where I could ask for a divorce, and which was something that I was terrified of doing for a very, very, very long time. So, you know, not only changing my behaviors and uh, aligning any kind of work that I did with my core values, I was also being true to myself and honoring myself and my feelings by extricating myself from a relationship that was not healthy for me. So kind of a long-winded way, you know, um, of saying, you know, that's how I did it. Uh, And of course, there's a lot more detail. This is just a kind of a 30,000 foot view of this. But what I did also along the way was really decide that I am really interested in the process of change. How do people change? How do, how did I do it like that? And, and, And so I started studying that. And I mentioned before the the stages of change, and there's uh, several individuals that really created this model. And when I first saw this in this book, I realized it's like, this is something that I was thinking about, I don't know how many years ago in a job that I had where I was doing leadership development assessment work. Mm-hmm. And how, how did people change, or how did organizations change? And I had this kind of really... I don't know, just this model of what I thought that looked like. Well, that's good, though. And change is tough. It, it's very, very tough. Yeah. It, it really, there's there's a lot out there on, on how do you make changes. But this model that these individuals, these authors of this book put together, laid it out just beautifully. And it was, it, it's like, it was an aha moment for me. And so I've spent a lot of time learning about that and not just learning the stages. And it's kind of like stages of grief, but it's stages of change. And I've spent a lot of time really working to understand how do you move through those stages with purpose and intent? And so, you know, as we progress through these podcasts, I would like to talk more about that because that is something that is actually used in uh, a lot of recovery arenas or the stages of change. There are smoking cessation programs, weight loss programs that use stages of change to uh, really help people move through that process and of help making them understand. Yeah, absolutely. So they're not flailing. Yeah, yeah. It's there's there are specific things that you can do, and you know it's interesting because you know there's all kinds of self help books and and guru type books out there. They all have their place, and there there's good information in there. But uh, if you can hang those on the framework of these stages and this process of change, it becomes incredibly powerful. And that's something, again, I want to talk more about. Um, so I guess to, to kind of wrap it up, uh, you know, in a, in a nutshell, that's how I did it. There's a lot more detail to it. Um, but I want people out there to know that, you know, you, you really have to start with getting honest with yourself, brutally honest. And until you can do that, real change is going to be difficult. 
but it is absolutely possible. I've seen it with a lot of people. I've and seen absolutely necessary and absolutely necessary. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. We say, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's you know there are people who don't deal with that reality, and those are the people who have relapsed or succumbed. Uh, and and I'm not talking just addiction. I'm talking about all types of things in life, anything that you want to change, whether it's, you know, I don't want to go cliche, but weight loss, or you want to change jobs, you want to radically transform your life, you want to, you know, move to a different city, there's, there's, there's these certain elements involved with this. But but you have to start by really being honest with yourself and, and really knowing yourself so that you can wield this with an amount of control. So... I think with that, um, you know, again, I could go on forever with this, but uh, we do have kind of a time frame here. So I think we'll just wrap it up at that. Is there anything else you'd like to ask while we're sitting here? Uh, I don't think I have any questions. I just would like to say I am so proud of you because it's over seven years of sobriety and there has not been one time where I've ever questioned or ever wondered if you would take a drink of alcohol you you know yourself so well now that you know you can't you know why and you're not going to do it for all those reasons yeah and i'm glad i'm one of the reasons yeah and you know Sweetie, I, I truly appreciate that. And I know that there's a number of people in my life that have the same sentiment and they, they see that. And while I appreciate all of that, I can say with certainty that whether that's there or not, I have the same deep, deep, deep conviction in myself that I am never going to be that guy again. I feel like I've woken up to myself, and that can't go away now. It, it simply can't. And I, by can't, I don't mean I'm desperate to keep it with me. I mean, there's no way, even if I tried, could that go away. And I want people out there to know, again, that change is possible. Growth is possible. But you got to do the hard work. And there you go. And there you go. 